You're listening to Film School, broadcasting every Tuesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time at KUCI 88.9 FM, Irvine, California, and on the web at KUCI.org slash filmschool. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. In his new documentary, The Art of Failure, Chuck Connolly, Not for Sale, our guest today, director Jeff Stimmel, looks at the unusual story of the rise and fall of a major talent from the 1980s art world. Though he was extremely talented with a profitable collection of work, Connolly ended up alienating every collector and gallery owner he worked with. Stimmel is a Los Angeles-based filmmaker who has directed several short films. In 2001, he received the Peer Award for the production of Ed Sherman's The State of the Artist. The Art of Failure is now screening on HBO and HBO On Demand. Jeff Stimmel, welcome to Film School. Hi, how are you? Good. How are you doing today? Good. You know, I was wondering, you were playing that uh, the final song in the film. Uh-huh. That idea kind of came by because I said to Chuck, you know, what would be your ideal retrospection or, or art opening or art exhibit? He said, well, it would be one that did involve the art world. So I said, well, what about if it's all sort of in your head? And he <laughs> said, perfect. That's <laughs> the best way to do it. That was a very nice uh, montage you did there at the end with his works. It's incredible the output that this, this man had and how little we know about him. How did you first hear about Chuck Conley? Just by happenstance, I had gone to an art opening in Soho in New York City in uh, October 2002, so it's been a few years. I saw you know, this, some of the amazing work at this gallery, but there weren't too many people there, and I was kind of baffled as to why somebody so talented had such a kind of low-key, uh, low turnout to an art opening. And I, I thought at first he might be a young artist because they don't have a name value, but I realized it wasn't. So that was fascinating, and I vaguely remembered the name from years past. And then I started talking to him. We went out to a bar across the street. Of course, he got completely out of control and standing up on the top of the bar and screaming, I'm the greatest artist in the world, and everybody else is, you know, lousy and hacks. And, you know, he's just, gee, this guy's crazy. So that was intriguing. And then I went down to his house. And the thing about the montage in that film is it's literally, I, I always am thinking of all the great paintings that are not in that montage. Because he has just so many. When you walk into his house, you're overwhelmed. It's this very old Victorian house is falling apart in a very kind of bad neighborhood in Philadelphia. And he has paintings in the basement and the bathrooms and all the bedrooms and the kitchens. And he paints right in the living room. So you open up the door to his house and he got this carpet that's hardened from all the paint and turpentine and beer and everything. And he paints right there in the living room. And I didn't know it at the time, but of course it's some, pretty much a clear metaphor as to how he lives his life, where painting comes first, and living or comfort or whatever, socializing all comes second. That's something that does come across in the film, that he doesn't have much else except his work. In the film, of course, the film you see him driving away and alienating so many important people in his life. Is it fair to ask, is, is this w the way he wants it? I don't think it's the way he wants it. That's a good question. I don't think it's the way he wants it at all. I mean, he can get very lonely. And, you know, he likes to be around people. He likes to have an audience. And uh, he, he can be generous towards some of his old friends from East Village who have fallen on hard times and so forth. But, you know, he's, he's kind of a macho kind of guy from a working-class area in Pittsburgh. And so often when he does good things for people, I don't hear about it. And, of course, I'm like, Chuck, why don't you tell me? We need stuff in the movie so people will like you. And he said, well, I didn't think about it. I don't need that to be in the movie. So... It's ironic that way. But I think he does. And I, you know, he's had girlfriends and relationships throughout his life and so forth. And 
I think the same with the art career elements. You know, he wants to have a certain form of success, but he just, you know, there's something about him that's very self-destructive, and uh, that also leads to his relationships in his personal life as well. Well, let's back up, and let's give some context to Chuck Connolly, where he came from, the rise, if you will, of Chuck Connolly. He grew up in Pittsburgh, which, again, in a kind of working-class environment, so I think it was always strange, I think, to a lot of people that he would begin to paint. It certainly wasn't an, uh, an environment that would can be conducive to that kind of thing. His parents weren't particularly artistic or even interested in art and so forth. And then he went to um, art school at Tyler Art School in Philadelphia, where I think he was sort of overwhelmed by people from wealthier schools from Boston and big cities like New York and so forth who knew all about Duchamp and John Cage and video installation, all the stuff he didn't know anything about. So This is in the 70s. This is in the 70s. I think he graduated in... 77. You know, he just was sort of, I think, the right person at the right place. Because he was formed from this somewhat kind of provincial background, he only knew like Van Gogh and Rembrandt, figurative painting, basically oil on canvas, which is all he's ever done. And so he was always doing that kind of work, but he just happened to be doing it at a time and place where, as they say, painting was back in the early 80s with Julian Schnabel and Basquiat and, and all these people. So he was kind of doing the right thing at the right time. I think that's originally how he got noticed, and he was very good at it. It was also, of course, he's not from the period of Van Gogh or Rembrandt, so he exists in the sort of modern period. So he does figurative paintings, but there's sometimes there's kind of mythology to them or a kind of cartoonish quality. Uh, you know, so he was just doing the right thing at the right time. And I said, oh, my God, he's another neo-expressionist, which he was like, I'd never even heard of the term. <laughs> you can call me that if you're going to buy some of my paintings. So. <laughs> exactly. In many ways, he was just at the right place at the right time. Yeah. And here he is with his work in the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City, and yet we see a scene early on in the film where one of his uh, oils is at a, right. up in an Internet auction. Yeah. yeah. And I, I guess it opens, I, I think it's about $225. <laughs> And you're watching the screen. It goes up to. Well, you're watching him watch the screen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And get, getting increasingly agitated. Yeah, right. and it, it finally, I think, it sells for five fifty or six hundred. Yes. Yeah. yeah. This is a guy who's who's in the Metropolitan Museum of Art, and and you can just see it drain him. That experience <laughs> just completely discombobulates him, and he's he goes into his tirade again. Was that footage that you had, or was that footage that his his wife took? Uh, that was footage that his wife filmed. I mean, yeah. what I'd done, and I, 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 I couldn't be with him 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And at that time, he was married. So I said, look, I, I'll get you a camera. That's my small kind of home video camera. And she, she Laurence, the wife, actually, yeah. filmed endless hours of stuff. And they would never tell me what it was. They would just mail me the tapes. They never <laughs> labeled anything. And the story behind that is he was talking to some friend who was just surfing the Internet. I said, oh, I see one of your paintings is for sale. And he said, it is. I, which, I, I don't know anything about it. So he looked it up, and he couldn't believe it. It was a painting he did in sort of his, the height of his popularity in the early 80s. It's a great painting. I, I should have bought it when I had the chance. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, it's the kiss of death for an artist if uh, your artwork goes for low prices, particularly on the Internet, which is seen by the world. So it's very troubling. And he had a gallery at the time that he was sort of on his way out with because they had had it with him. They were sick of him. And what a gallery is supposed to do when they see those kind of scenarios is bid up the price to keep all his prices high. Mm. And, of course, they were like, we don't care about him. We were mad at him anyway, so we're not going to bother. And so that's when he got in a big fight with his gallery and they dumped him, which ends up, as the film goes on, one of many things happened in his life. 
So that sort of started the ball rolling. His wife leaves him, his bird dies, his art patron dumps him. His art patron, that was an interesting guy. He does metal smelting, yes. like gold and silver and right, so forth, right. and he inherited the company. Only Chuck can find a patron like him. I mean, <laughs> he's wealthy, but he's not, typically with Chuck, he's not in the art world. He's not a player in the art world. He's sort of in the more provincial elements of society, you know, not that Philadelphia is a small town, but he's not in the art world, but he came across Chuck's work about 20 years ago and started buying a lot of it, but, you know, he he was a businessman, as it says in the movie, and I think he sort of sensed as Chuck was getting more desperate that he could get better deals. Yes, yeah. yes, and the falling out, and a spoiler well, alert here, this fa- the falling out had to do with something pretty... Well, he, he was commissioning something that that was over the, was, over yeah. the size of the painting. I think is what I, it I, I'm siding with Chuck on that one. I, <laughs> I just wish that man had more sense. Yeah, uh, there, yeah. There is... But I mean, you know, the, the the thing about an art patron, which I didn't realize until I did the movie, is you know, a lot of art patrons are like, you know, I have enough paintings. I really don't want. To, I really can't store any more paintings. Yeah. Chuck's like, yeah, but I'm starving. I'm going to get kicked out in the street. I need the money. So I do admit that with Matt, you know, I think there was a period where he's like, all right, I'll buy you. I don't really need any more, but I'll buy a few. But, yes, I think he, he certainly overreacts. And he didn't really quite get, you know, people that are not rich. Yeah. <laughs> I think. But now he's probably laughing to the bank because Chuck's paintings are already selling for $35,000. Well, that was going to be a question I was, I was dying to know is – I don't know if it's just a progression of recognition uh, in the art community uh, regarding his work, or has this has your documentary and in some way impacted the uh, the value that people are willing to pay for uh, the price people are willing to pay for his for his paintings? Yeah, I think it really clearly it has, and I think which one is it? Is it just a recognition, or is it this documentary? I think it's definitely the documentary. Okay, okay. I think you know the art world has grown so much over the years that I think if if this film was done twenty or thirty years ago. The art world would be like, yeah, it's some movie on HBO. It doesn't have anything to do with real art or so forth. And there's still probably a lot of people that will say that in the art world today. But there's so many more galleries. There's so many young galleries out there that, you know, you can't buy that kind of recognition, as they say. So I think immediately people are starting to buy his paintings because he has a recognition and a film about him that most even big artists don't have. And I think there's also sort of a sense at his age and with the documentary being not a day in a life or anything, but his whole life, yeah. that people are kind of reevaluating and go, oh, this guy really is good. Yeah. So I think it's a combination of those two things, kind of re-recognizing him and recognizing him perhaps for the first time. And so he is selling paintings. I think he sold a few for 28000 30000 35000 And that's the most money he's got for painting in probably 25 years. Well, so that's, that's selling that's what... off the shelves. Shelves. That's what they seem to be worth when you look at them and, and yeah. compare them to who else is out there. There's just a, a really wonderful and embarrassing scene where the, the patron is showing off his oil paintings in, in his office. <laughs> yes. and there's one where he's talking about he's perfect in all four corners. I think it was a house. Yeah, I never my, did know what that meant, actually. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, that guy did seem to be <laughs> full of something. Yeah. Uh, did I hear a toilet flush in the background? <laughs> yes, it was right next to the bathroom. Yeah, yeah. it was kind of weird. I mean, uh, yeah. on the one hand, I, I think you... you you can be impressed by the fact that he really likes Chuck Chuck's artwork, but he almost in a way doesn't respect it, I think, yeah. and because he's inherited wealth, because he had his paintings in the bathrooms and, yeah. you know, in the factory areas and just all over the place. And yeah. 
You can tell the people working there are like, we don't know anything about art. We don't care who this guy is. We hate our boss. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He hates them. So, you know. Was... He, he had that kind of Johnny Carson thing going on well, with this. And, with this. Yeah. I, and I was, I, I didn't yeah. quite, I mean, he looked like he was somebody who was still living in the 80s himself, actually. If yeah, he, well, he's the only person I interviewed that I showed up, and he, he already had makeup on. I don't know where he got it or whatever. But now, did, no, was that office with the caveman painting? Was that his offices there? No, that's, that's the office that goes into sort of the industrial space. And it was in uh, August, and it was you know it was like a hundred degrees, maybe more so in that space. Oof. Doesn't that he's affect got his silk suit on and everything and makeup? And he you <laughs> know he walks in and nobody says hello to him, and he just makes fun <laughs> of them being cavemen and stuff. And yeah, you know these poor guys are sweating in these big space suits and things. And well. he was like, yeah, don't worry, it can't be more than 125 degrees in there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> In about seven hours, you'll be able to go home. Don't worry about now, it. Now, does, know, does, 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 that totally touch. does that kind of heat actually affect the paint itself? Does that, yeah, I think it does, actually. Chuck has complained a few times that he shouldn't have them in there, but he doesn't listen to Chuck. I, Chuck I, has him in his leaky basement and his leaking <laughs> attic. He's not exactly putting him into some hermetically sealed, no, temperature-controlled no. environment himself. Yeah. Now, I, I have to say this. Well, the caveat here is I am not an expert on art, but I was an absolutely expert. enamored with with. I can't. The variety, the range of his paintings that you show in this film are remarkable. I want to go to the Fred Scaboda Scaboda yeah, era. Well, there's I, the early Fred Scaboda period. The, yes, there's which, the early, and which, which is actually uh, Chuck Connolly himself. And then later in the film, uh, the, you go ahead and explain yeah, explain it, what Jeff, the Fred Scaboda yeah. thing is. Well, you know, the funny thing was uh, to touch on something you were saying earlier. There was a period when I was filming him. I kind of realized after a while that there was nobody else in his life but me, <laughs> which yeah. is a problem for a documentary filmmaker because immediately they're like, oh, just you and me, buddy. I said, well, well, later on, I'm not exactly your buddy. I'm the filmmaker. You're the subject. Oh, I'm just a subject now. That's what I, I'm just a subject. I see. That's how it is. Okay. You know, and I, you know, it's kind of weird. So nevertheless, when that moment happened, we sat around his house drinking beer, just the two of us. And late into the night, he said, he explained this Fred Scaboda alter ego, which he'd only mentioned in passing. And again, he said, you know, I'd come from a kind of a provincial environment, and I was very intimidated by all these people and all these, you know, crazy artists I never heard of and so forth. So he, he kind of developed this alter ego, I think, as he does anything, out of a kind of sense of fear and vulnerability. Because he was the best artist in his high school. He goes to art school. All of them are from their high school. So, you know, it was very competitive and overwhelming for him. And a Fred Scaboda guy also is sort of a fantasy of Chuck's, I think. Mm-hmm of, like, being working class and, like, a real guy, a real man's man, but in the art world. Mm-hmm. And he equates everybody in the art world as being very effeminate, which is <laughs> odd in a way. <laughs> so he wants to kind of, again, I think this demonstrates how he's lived his life. He wants to kind of fantasize about this, like, working class artist that doesn't need the art world, can just sell paintings to the average person. Of course, the average person can't afford to buy most, you know, yeah. artwork and so forth. So Skoboda, I'm actually from Pittsburgh, too, so this is why I instantly recognized what he was doing. Skoboda is an old kind of hunky or Hungarian or Eastern European mythological steelworker name. Mm. You know, and I know yeah. exactly where he got it from, and he was surprised I figured it out. But if you're from Pittsburgh, it's like John Henry or, you know, Paul yeah. Bunyan, these kind of things. So I thought that was kind of ironic that he picked that name. So anyways, he was telling me that... Uh, he said, yeah, I had this fresco boat alter ego, and he was like this macho guy that would come late at night and vandalize all the paintings I'd done that day. And I think the alter ego also functions for his alcoholic 
element to him because you know when he's sober he's generally pretty soft well he's always yelling but you know he's generally shy and Mm -hmm. you know more normal but he really has this other side of him yeah and i think this is his way of explaining away the the drinking night kind of thing anyway so he was telling me you know i did these paintings off 30 or 40 paintings and i did them in the um you know, 77, 78, very few people had ever seen them. And I really never painted quite like that before, and certainly not since, because then later I sort of was on the fast track to success and got rid of the whole Fresco Boda thing. And I'm thinking, okay, so why are you telling me this? He's like, well, you know, so I have like 40 paintings that people won't even recognize for mine. But they're really great, and they look like they were just painted today. The style is what's popular right now. And I thought, okay, that's interesting. What's your point? And he said, well, you know how, you know, in the art world today, they market a lot of young, attractive people. They, they raid students from uh, art schools now because their prices will be cheap and they're very marketable and they're much more career-oriented than Chuck's generation. They don't tend to abuse drugs and alcohol as much, although, you know, they still do it in yeah. a way. And I said, yeah, I get all this. And he said, well, what if I get some good-looking art student or better yet, an actor, a good-looking young actor who's everything I'm not, who's friendly, shakes hands, you know, talks up a good game and, and likes to network and all that. And, and he could go out these paintings, which nobody's seen. They'd never know their mind. I mean, most people don't know who I am anyways at this point, but they would never know their mind, and they're very contemporary. And I thought, wow, that's a pretty interesting idea. And at least that way he would be able to get some money and maybe split it with the actor. So, as you've seen in the movie, that's what he does, you know, and the actor, of course, is unknown, but was very good at improvisation, which yeah. I think was lucky for Chuck. Mm-hmm. So he goes off and he, you know, he goes to these galleries, then he gets the galleries to visit his studio, and actually does end up having a one-man show and selling some paintings. But by that point, Chuck has sort of sabotaged the whole thing. Yeah, he yeah. did. He, he did. But, there's, but I don't recall that any of the photos that were in the, uh, the room that they were bringing the gallery owners into were any of the actual Fred Scavota. Were they? Well, that was the sabotage. That know? was the sabotage. They were all, they were as they put lesbian. Well, this is, uh, and this is one of the things that HBO sort of disagreed about a little bit. Of course, with Chuck, nothing's ever very simple. Yeah. So the actor goes out, he, he drums up a lot of interest from real good galleries, actually, about this artwork. So I take him down to Chuck's house, because he'd never been to Chuck's house before. And after it's like, you know, he has a few beers with Chuck, and he's like, okay, let's go look at the original Fred Scabotas. He's like, well, uh, I don't really have any of them. I gave them away to my pot dealer in the 80s, and one of them, I think, caught on fire. And I don't really have any. I got a couple, but they're damaged. And so the actor's like, what are you talking about? You know, you've got to be kidding me. I went to all these people and everything, and he's getting freaked out. And Chuck's like, you don't worry about it. We're stupid. They'll take anything. So it was like, what the hell is going on? And I didn't really know what was going on. And so when he arrives at this the kind of studio, which was a friend of Chuck's in Brooklyn that he had arranged to pose as a kind of artist loft, he couldn't find any old paintings there and was totally freaked out. But Chuck said, oh, don't worry. I, last week I spent uh, the time painting new Freds, you know, and I'm like, painted 30 paintings in a week? Yeah. And I knew right away that he was kind of sabotaging David because he became very, David Nelson, who's the actor, he became very jealous of David. He would call me drunk late at night and be like, now you're making a movie about the David Nelson guy? What about me? I said, I'm not making a movie. I'm, I'm, this is your biography. Well, he's out there picking up girls in the art world and you're never filming me anymore. You're only filming him. I'm like, Chuck, try to understand this. You can't be with us when this guy goes to galleries. You understand that part, right? He's like, yeah, I know, but I'm down here all by myself. God knows what this guy's doing. He's, you know, getting laid with my paintings. I said, well, this is your idea. You created it, you know. So he became very jealous and envious of the actor and was afraid the actor would run off with the paintings and the money and pick up girls that he 
potentially would pick up, which I think is kind of fantasy. But <laughs> it used to be. So it was like, so you spent a week painting 30 paintings. Chuck, they look kind of unfinished and kind of sloppy. He said, no, oh, we are, we won't know the difference. So I said, well, then, you know, I could tell that he was sort of sabotaging this, and David became very unnerved. Yeah. Yeah. Nevertheless, there were a couple galleries that were interested in giving him a show, and I suspect, because they were sort of polite about it, I suspect their idea was, we don't love the art that we see here, but obviously you've got a treasure trove of really great art. And yeah. The actor was like, oh, they're at my family's farm or my aunt, you know, <laughs> right. testing one out or something. I don't remember what he told them. Well, anyway. you had, yeah, you had the book there, and they were, they were leafing through it saying, this is great stuff. Where is <laughs> yeah, it? <laughs> and I think Chuck, you know, really was sabotaging it. It was kind of hard for him to kind of confess. He does a little. He confesses that I didn't want to put my best work up there. I treated it like a joke. But he doesn't really come clean about it. Yeah. And I respectfully disagreed with HBO, but I think HBO was like, you know, that all gets kind of complicated. And I'm not sure we want to go there because it's going to take a long time to explain all this. So they kind of felt like, let's ease out of that situation and, and mm. cut right to the montage. And, and I respect that decision. Yeah. Yeah. Has his relationship with, you, you interview some of the major art dealers and art gallery, art dealers like Mary Lou Swift and... Uh, right. Anna, Anna Nose. Oh, oh uh, Nina Nose. Nose. Famous dealer from the 80s. Right. And, and these people were early on fans of his work, and then he obviously became too difficult, according to them, too difficult to work with. Has any of these bridges been repaired or any of the in these relationships on back on yeah, track? Now that he sold something N- for 35. Really. Uh, no, they okay. all kind of said the same thing. We love his artwork but we can't stand the person. It depends. I mean, uh, Eddie Doga, who is an art dealer who actually arranged for Chuck's original art patron in 1980, which was Dr. Atkins of the Atkins Diet. He's remained on friendly terms with Chuck, and I think mainly because he's always sort of kept this sort of safe distance. You know, he's a family and so forth. Yeah. So, you know, just um, quickly, too, what we didn't mention is uh, Chuck is portrayed by Nick Nolte mm-hmm. in the film New York Stories, Life, right. Life Lessons. Mr. Conley didn't think too much of the film and said so in print. <laughs> did, did, uh, Scorsese... Did did he pretty much uh, put the kibosh on uh, on Chuck Conley? Did he stop his career? No, no. That that actually, I, I was always a little worried that that it wasn't clear enough to people because it basically serves as a kind of metaphor for a, a thousand things that Chuck did wrong, and uh-huh. and essentially, I didn't want it to read this way, and and I, I kind of went back and forth with the editor about this, but you know, I I think you know when the film was sort of in pre-production and early production stages. Martin Scorsese was, you know, very enthusiastic about Chuck's art, and there might have been very informal discussions about, you know, when I go back to Los Angeles, and people in Beverly Hills. The thought of this is just what Chuck tells me and, and Matt Garfield and other people, that, you know, there was some thought that maybe the film and Martin Scorsese and, uh, could promote Chuck's work. Then when he's interviewed with the New York Post and basically trashes the movie and says it's no raging bull and it's cliched and everything. Yeah. I think all Martin Scorsese really did was just sort of remove himself from that relationship and kind of give him the cold shoulder. I don't think Chuck was really enthusiastically invited to come by the set anymore. And and Chuck did write him a letter, I guess, after the film ended, and Marty never responded to it. Yeah. But it's not like he went out and said, don't, don't buy any paintings from the yeah. sky. And that little passage always made me nervous. It was just another example of like, okay, I just right. don't want to deal with this crazy artist. Yeah, here's an example of a major... Hollywood director who's taken with your work, he wants to help you, and you burn you burn that bridge as well. So right, and I think that's when Mary Lou Swift and Chuck had a falling out because she just couldn't believe that he'd be so stupid. So. Yeah, it's a terrific film, The Art of Failure. Chuck Connolly, not for sale. It's been on HBO and it will continue to run on HBO. It's on HBO on demand and on, yeah, and on, on demand now, and then it airs again on July eighth, the tenth, the sixteenth, and then it goes on HBO two. 
seventh, sixteenth, and twenty second. But if people wanted more information about his artwork or the schedule when it airs, it's also going to be on BBC. They can go to www.theartoffailure.com, and there's a lot of press clippings and some great links to seeing almost every painting he's ever painted. Well, I want you to do me a favor. The next time there's a an eBay bidding on one of his <laughs> paintings, I want you to get a hold of me because I'm I'm in. But you okay. want to insult him again. No, don't I don't you, want Mark? to insult yeah. him again. I I, th- I just love his work. I mean, honestly, this is great stuff. Well, thank you, Jeff Stemmel, okay, for, for being here. All right, bye-bye. To learn more about Film School, listen to more interviews, or subscribe to our podcast, visit our website at KUCI.org slash filmschool.